So this week's parsha is important in as much as it's a bridge between Moshe's appointment, which was in, and between Moshe now beginning to act as the redeemer, if that's the word that we can use. But on the other hand, there's no redemption, which means the redemption is not going to take place until some place you can decide exactly when it takes place, if it takes place in uh, in Bo or it takes place in in Bishalach, but that that's further down the line. So therefore, we have filler. So what is our filler? And our, right, the answer is the filler is our plagues. Yeah. So now, so now the question then really becomes: Is why do we need the plagues? And I, we we've discussed this before. What is the purpose of the plagues, and why not an immediate and sudden redemption? Why? I mean, it's God, so you can write anything you want in the script. So why, why is there a necessity? So I want to point at two things to take into consideration. One is a verse which is current, which is God is going to judge the gods with a small g of Egypt. And on the other hand, something which goes way back in the past, and that is by the Brit Bain Tarim, which essentially creates the rules of engagement for the Jewish people moving forward, and that is the covenant that God made with Avraham, which included the slavery, the servitude, and also said that he's going to take us out of at some point, and I'm going to judge the people that did this. Now, of course, you can enter into some kind of philosophical questions. If this is part of God's script, then why then why the judgment is necessary? And you could answer in two different ways. One, who said that you had to be the one to, to do the enslavement? On the other hand, it could be that God is going to judge and say, did you do your minimum? We you do the maximum. I would assume that in, uh, that in many situations, you can have somebody who, let's say somebody shoots somebody and then there's an investigation. Did you have to use that kind of that kind of force? Could you, could you have disarmed the others with less force? Could you have enslaved them without, and I'll, I'll just give a theoretical, but it's not a theoretical, did you have to throw the babies into, into the water? So, so at that point, you say, oh, Dan Anochi, I'm going to judge them because that was not in the, in the brochure. I mean, we're going down to Egypt, that was not there. I mean, to be enslaved is one thing, but who said anything about, uh, about, about, about killing it all, about killing babies, and, and so on and so forth. So the judging could be, you know, how, in investigation, how much, and then perhaps there's punishment. But the difference between, right, if you want, now want to get yeshivish, when you tell this over on Friday night, if you want to be yeshivish, then you'll say, so what's the nafkamina? That's the term. What's the nafkamina? Which really means in English, but what's the practical difference between these two different approaches? And the answer would be is that one is in the realm of the judicial, Dan Anochi, I'm going to judge, and the other which is in the, even though it's, I'm sorry, it says Shvatim, Lishpot means to do a judgment as well, but the other is when you're judging other gods in imaginary belief. So it's at that point, it's much more in the realm of theology. So what I'm not going to do is what some people like to do a lot, and that is, especially in this section, it's interesting, especially in this section, you have lots of commentaries who go for the big theory, the theory of everything, right? They want they want all of the ten plagues to fit into some type of a, a, of a pattern, and Rabbi Huda dividing it helps that as well, and, and, they, and I'm not saying a pattern isn't there. There, there. there may very well be a pattern. I'm, I'm saying something else. It doesn't concern me, which means that 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 would actually be an indication of something which is deeper. And I'm looking today for something which is much more obvious and much and, and, and is so obvious. Actually, my question then is: Has have people missed it? If we wanted to be more academic, 
then we could uh, we can accuse me today of doing something which I would call a more literary approach. If, on the other hand, we want to be, again, more yeshivish, then we'll say we're very interested today in pshat. What does it say? What does it actually say? And therefore, then what does that give me? So just to go back one step, I think that there are those who will take this theological battle and then overstate this or state it or see it in everything. This whole thing is about God's using God's strength and proving God's dominion over everything and then look for the God element in, in it all, which is interesting. And again, not taking any way, anything away from God, but I've already pointed out that we have at least three and maybe four different audiences that we're interested in. One audience is, okay, is Egypt. The other, you know, power of Egypt, we conclude them together. Other is from God's perspective, which we can't really imagine. And the other is going to be from our perspective. And we want to continue the hour. It's our and the people that are there at the time, and then it's our in the future. And and let's admit something, because that's actually where, where it gets a little weaker. Our in the future are all the commentaries on the Haggadah, which very often are very you know imaginative and have nothing to do with what really actually happened at the time. But what they're trying to do is something which is very good. Let, let me make the Torah meaningful for me. Let me make it real for me. Let me make it something which has an application going out throughout the, the generations. I've uh, years and years ago, I, I can't even tell you how many years ago, I gave a class trying to show the evolving face in the various art of, uh, in, in the Haggadah of the, of the Wicked Son. And to, sh- and, to show, and to show how the Wicked Son is updated to mean different things in, in different generations. But that, and, and the Wicked Son, by the way, to what extent is that actually in the text? Or to what extent is the Wicked Son something which is forced in the, in the text? I mean, I, I don't think he's there. I, I don't think he's there in the Pshat, in, uh, in the Chumash. And it's, uh, it's actually very interesting why he does get placed there. But there is something which is evolving, and we do want to make it relevant, and therefore there is going to be interpretation coming from our perspective. And, you know, I don't have to talk about Torah now. This is true in any time that we get involved in, in any kind of art. And I'll include Torah in, as an art. It's the art. It's a literature. It's theology. And any time there's art, there is the original attention of the artist, and then there is how does it move me? How does it move the person who's looking at it, which is which is subjective? You can, we can get to postmodern when we say, "Who cares what the person had in mind?" and it's only going to be my perspective, and uh, and they didn't know what they were talking about in the first place. And and but but as I said, oh, that doesn't interest me today. What interests me today is not my modern perspective. What interests me today is not necessarily any all-inclusive. Approach because I think that I think that really in the text it does suggest that there are multiple ways of looking at this, and I'm very comfortable with looking in multiple ways. And, and when possible, I'll, I'll even point out my my hesitation. And now the only question is where we are actually supposed to begin. Let's see if I have a chumash, maybe I would consider even looking inside. The 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 the, the, the first thing, the first thing that would interest me, even though it's not what I have over here as the first source. The first thing that interests me is let's then go back to when Moshe arrives at the palace. So Moshe does two things when he arrives. One thing is the staff of Aaron gets turned into a tanin. And the tanin is interesting because the tanin is not necessarily what it was turned into when they were by the burning bush. At the burning bush there it says nachash. Rashi works with our favorite theory of conservation of... Of 
of reptiles. <laughs> Theory of conservation of reptiles by essentially saying, okay, don't read the, don't read the text carefully. A nachash is a, is a reptile and a tanin is a reptile, although there is a very big difference between the two. Now, in a shir that I gave in uh, three years ago, I, I, I noted then that the nachash doesn't leave that because that doesn't bother me. I, I don't believe it can really literally be a nachash which so frightens Moshe. Moshe is somebody who works all day as out in the field with his flock. I, I'm, uh, he, he sees serpents all the time. He smacks them with a stick. I, I don't believe that that would be something. On the other hand, you're talking about a serpent which represents sin in the Garden of Eden. That to me is much more... Uh, is much more frightening, and that would explain Moshe's response much more. But that's Moshe. Moshe's staff turned into a nachash, again, that's back in chapter 3. Now, in chapter 7, what we have is Aaron in front of in front of Paro turning his staff, and it comes a tanin. Now, now a tanin is, is, is obviously very interesting, especially later on when we find the verse in Yechezkel, which should have been completely predictable, when God says, I'm on to you, Paro, king of Mitzrayim, Right, the Hatanim Hagadol, right, the the great crocodile who slithers around his river and says, "Li Oriva Ni Asitini," that the river is mine and, and I create and I created it, which means that verse there later on now indicates something which is theological, which means we just now easily went into the realm of theology. And the other thing which is interesting and and it's almost too obvious, somebody could have insisted, "Well, why is that not a plague?" So now define plague. So you would say, well, plague, how many people have to suffer in a plague? Which means what, what, how bad is something to plague? Paro could not have felt that good about, and, and then his people do it. But then Aaron's staff, by the way, it doesn't say his, uh, his staff swallows them. Theologically, that's absolutely devastating for Paro. Paro, who identifies as the, as the crocodile, and you can all bother, bother Michael afterwards in, 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 in terms of his knowledge of Egyptology and to what extent crocodiles were included within the mythology which they self-identified with. So again, look what we just did. For us, the crocodiles today don't mean all that much unless we're talking about what... what in Florida, it would have been an alligator. So again, that, that all means less to us, but th- that's a powerful beast and it's an and it's a mean animal, as far as I can tell. Very I'm sure. I'm, I'm, as far as I can tell, it's very mean. I'm, I'm, I know someone's gonna someone's gonna write me now and say, "What are you talking about? They're misunderstood." And <laughs> you don't worry. You don't get the you don't get the fan mail. <laughs> they're they're mis. Nonetheless, Paro is identifying with this not nice animal, which is really quite powerful and swallows things. So to have Aaron's stick be turned into one and then the others turn into one. Now, by the way, that itself to me is completely mystifying that we have to come back to, obviously. How, do they, how are they able to do this? Is this real? Is it sleight of hand? Is this Daber Copperfeld? Is this black magic? I mean, what, what exactly? exactly is going on. I, actually, I, I had dinner, whatever, a couple of years ago with somebody who I know for a while, and he mentioned in the past, oh yeah, David Copperfield is my cousin. Like, can you imagine him coming to the Seder? <laughs> the guy's going to steal the Afikoma and he's going to make it disappear, right? <laughs> Turn the Afikoma into a pigeon. Okay. But the text actually then suggests that Aaron's staff then swallows the other crocodile, which means our power you know, this old Jew, that's what Aaron is, he's an old Jew, 
He's an old Jew. He's walking with a staff, and his staff can swallow the symbolism of all of Egypt. That's something which is devastating for those who are watching this. Now, one of the things that occupies us all along the way, and again, I don't want to get lost on this, but it does occupy us all the way, and that is God's involvement. But, but I, I don't talk about God's involvement in terms of the cardiology and hardening his heart, but, but hold, hold on that for a second. Sefer Shemot as a whole is about God being involved in history or God being involved in humanity. A God who creates the world and then for the most part, again, you're going to tell me the couple of episodes in Bereshit, but for the most part, then God backs away and lets the world run on almost automatic pilot. Yes, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of a talking serpent and I'm aware of this. I'm aware of the flood and I'm aware of stone and Amora being overturned. But I'll say it again, for the most part, God is working behind the scenes in the various events. One thing that he does do constantly, again, this is something we've noticed constantly, I don't know to what extent it bothered you, and that is that God God actually, hard, I don't, the word harden isn't used, or everyone would have gotten it already. God manipulates various people's thought processes or he gets involved and gives people warnings along the way. And that happens constantly with people who are of power, who want to do things which are bad. And God says, uh, you know, fall in line. Right? This is not going to work out for you very well. And now you can choose. You know, which Obviously, in the text, he does it to Avimelech, and he does it, and he does it to Lavan. Okay, saying that's, that's obvious, because it says it. It says in the text. Personally, I believe that he does it to Esav as well. I think that's why Esav is so nice. Now the question is, if we keep going, how many other times did that really happen that we didn't notice? Did, did, did Yosef really give better advice than everybody else did? Maybe. We like to think that, right? He's a nice Jewish boy, so of course he was smarter than everybody else. Or does uh, God say, okay, this is the one. You're going to love what he says. I mean, and, and I'm just saying, is there a manipulation? Because this is the way that this story has to take place. So therefore, whenever there's a, there is something that has to happen, again, you don't want to say that. So did God cause him to get angry at those particular people and throw them into prison in order that Yosef is able to help them? I'm, I'm saying that, that God, if he is, God is involved in Bereshit, but he's involved behind the scenes. But behind the scenes includes perhaps manipulating a couple of people along the way. So, so now... <coughs> So now we're going to get to Paro, and we're suddenly get very, very troubled by this, and say, "Oh, how can he?" Right? And we're going to get to philosophical problems. How in the world could uh, God, could God harden his heart? And, and, and can we limit the question for a second? Because it really is limited. The question is, the problem of free will. First of all, free will is completely over overrated. Right? <laughs> you don't have as much free will as you think you do. Okay, you're born in certain environments, there's certain genetic things, you certain socioeconomic, and we can continue. Essentially, you're, you're dealt a hand. Now, how are you going to play the hand that you're dealt? You don't get to choose the cards. So let's let let's be let's be very very honest about that. That it's much more limited than sometimes we think. The issue of free will is an issue of reward and punishment, which means the, with the with the cards that I was dealt, now the question is to what extent will I be ethical or unethical? What will my responses be? Good, bad, helpful, not helpful? And and it's all about reward and punishment. 
So here's the thing we don't want to think about. Could it be that at certain times that God suspends our free will because we're a pawn in somebody else's story in order for something else to happen? So what's the big difference then? The big difference is that I don't necessarily get rewarded or punishment for that particular thing because I may not really have been in complete control to make that kind of a decision because there was something which was larger or different that had to take place at that time. So I'm going to say it again. The whole issue of free will is not that we have this total right to free will in every situation to do anything that we want. That's a complete exaggeration. Rather, the issue of free will is that situations that we're placed in, if there's going to be reward or punishment, then we had to, to a certain extent, be able to make choices in terms of what it is that we're going to do. So the problem of God's hardening Paro's heart is not a problem in terms of God manipulating history because God has every right to manipulate history. God can do that whenever God chooses and sometimes we'll notice it and sometimes perhaps we won't notice it. But the issue is then going to be one of reward or punishment. So with that whole preamble, it's some of the people, I don't want to name any names now, I'll get into trouble. Some of the people who discussed this confused everyone because essentially they set up a problem, hold it, how can power be punished when God hardens his heart? And the reality is the other, is, is completely the other way around, And right? And I've said this so many times. The reality is the other way around. What does power want? What does he really want? Or if he was a spice girl, what does he really, really want, right? What, what does power want? And the answer is... He wants to, how do you know that even? The, the, <laughs> the, the answer is that he wants to hold on to his slaves. He wants the free labor. He wants the feeling of power. So now, what is taking that away from him? Answer, the plagues. The plagues are making him feel weak. He's going to have a hard time sleeping at night. He doesn't feel as confident as he did before. So therefore, when God hardens his heart, did he take away his free will? Or did he give him back his free will? The answer is obvious. He gives him back the free will to allow him to do that which he really does. So how could, meaning the other, it should have been the other way around. If power would have freed the slaves after God does plague number one, two, three, four, and five, then what reward should he get? He's just been completely intimidated by something which is far more powerful than him. Should we all applaud power? Look what a wonderful ethical person he is by releasing his slaves. Or essentially he was brought to his knees and he can't fight anymore and he's about to give up and do something he doesn't want to do. That's the important part. So therefore, to try to create the hardening of the heart, and that's the philosophical problem, that's just not the case. Which means when God gets involved in history, and that's the larger issue which takes place in Shemot, is suddenly God gets involved in history. Suddenly miraculous things that were set up in the six days of creation start working very, very differently. Which means what the plagues are, are a change with the nature. And, and maybe, and maybe, the best plague is going to be Barad. Because not only are you going to have the hail coming, but it's hail and fire together, it's ice and fire together, complete opposites. And how do they coexist? And how does this actually happen? So again, maybe someone's going to find some scientific explanation for it. But I'm just saying, looking at the rules of nature changing, that is something which Paro's watching. And, and, and how do you deal with this? So I'll say it again. It's the plagues which take away the free will. It's seeing the miraculous which takes away the free will. When God hardens his heart, he lets him do again what he really wants to do. And therefore, this whole, philo- this whole imagined philosophical problem doesn't really seem to exist. You're, not, you're, you're going to agree with me, right? I was just going to ask a question. Okay. So, <clears throat> when the last plague happens, is he now intimidated that he finally agrees because all these firstborn died? Or... What, what exactly happens in his psychological, in his psyche at that point? Presumably his psychologist has, uh, 
has professional responsibilities and is not able to really share that with us. <laughs> right? Or you want you want me to answer a little? I don't know. I don't I don't I don't know what he's experiencing. Of course, he's intimidated. Of course. Well, 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 it's going to pick up soon when he's going to chase them down afterwards. Yeah, so he's he's going to recover. Now you're going to ask me: Is he taking medication? Is he like what? Uh, come on, I'm, I'm not allowed to answer some of these questions. It's not right. It's not right. It's not right. So, but again, we, we've noticed a number of things now. We've noticed that, and, and again, I, I've been talking much more from the theological perspective, again, meeting then nature, and that, that's really what's interesting, because God's ability to call nature, so therefore, is God now? Should I be totally focusing on, on, what's, on what's taking place? Is God is judging the gods, again, the pagan gods control everything. I mean, for the most part, you have things divided, you know, we have a God of this and a God of that and a God of this and, and, and so on. And, and let's just move over to, this, to the second thing that happens then, which, again, that is considered a plague, while the first one isn't considered a plague, which is completely fascinating. What's the, what's the second thing that happens is, the, is blood, is blood. So then when all the waters turn into blood, so, so now I want to be careful because I can easily go in two different ways. So which way should we go first? Should we go first in terms of judgment or should we go first in terms of theology? Well, we started theology, let's continue theology. Going back on the same verse that I quoted in Yechezkel, that he is the God of the Nile and he created the Nile, the Nile turning to blood is something which should have been completely, completely... If you're a power, how do you take this? It's devastating. It's absolutely devastating to see, to see that somebody else has control. Not only somebody else has control of the, of the Nile... That in their mind, to a certain extent, the, 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 the Nile's alive. And amen, the Nile is alive. Right? It's, a, it's a live bodily, body of, of water which, which climbs up and then goes and, and irrigates and so on. And, and, and it's because it looks like it's alive is why they're able then to see it as something which is animated. And for the Nile and therefore all of the water which is coming out of it, turning into blood, that's something which is completely devastating. And again, I'm continually on that theological level that the gods of Egypt are being judged, but I can just as easily now move in the other direction. How can I, how, how can I move? And, and now again, I'm saying, I, I just, I'm giving you two levels, I don't want to say two levels of shot. I'm, I would be tempted to say two alternative understandings of shot, but I'm not even going to say that they're alternatives because I think that they coexist. Can you have can you have two levels of, of shot? What is not coexisting? I didn't say the second one yet. Oh. Once when Rav Lichtenstein was teaching something and he mentioned that Shir Hashirim, I believe it was Shir Hashirim, works on two levels of shot and he says like Spencer's Fairy Queen. Okay, I never read the Fairy Queen, and uh, I, I, Spencer. Yeah, he goes, oh, Spencer's Fairy Queen. It's good. You're well read, no? Also, no. <laughs> now, you, now you have your home. So, is that the, that's the librarian or that's the teacher talking? No, that's when I went to college. Huh? Okay. 
A long time. Ago. A long time. You, you didn't go to school in medieval, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But uh, yes, I, I remember that that was his response, and every everyone don't don't feel bad. Everyone's just looking at him like it's like Spencer's very cool. He the, the the legend is that at one time he was on a dais with Rav Avad Yosef, and he mentioned that according to the Rambam you could look at it this way, and then he said, but according to the Rajbi you can look this way, but according to Dostoevsky you can read it like this, and Rav Avadi comes over. Right? Yes. Sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I have it here someplace. Go and talk to Paro, the king of Egypt. Get in his face, actually. Like, it's very strong. And say to him, right? The, the Paro who slithers around the river like, like, like a crocodile who says... The river is mine, and I created it. So that, that means it's such a strong verse. So, yes, I'm using that to come back. So, but one second. But I started to say that perhaps there's two different levels of pshat. One level of pshat would be that it's this war against the so-called gods of Egypt. But what would the other level of pshat be? The other level would be, so think a second. The Nile gets turned to blood. Why should the Nile get turned to blood? Can we go backward to last week? There's this scene that I think we misread because because we're decent, and probably after October 7th, we should not be decent. We should not be decent. The scene that I'm talking about is when the daughter of Paro goes down to bathe in the Nile. Do you realize how sick that is to bathe in the Nile? They've been throwing all the babies in the Nile. So therefore, the Nile gets full of... Uh, of and, and by the way, and there are crocodiles there. So that's a wonderful combination between the crocodiles and the, and the babies. And what a wonderful place to go on your, uh, on your vacation and, or, or to go to relax for the day. Let's have a day in the sun. Let's go down. And uh, it, I'm saying it, it's, a pl- it's the killing fields, right? It's the killing water. It's a place of... It's this place of... In, in, how do you pronounce it? Infanticide? It, 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 it's this place of death. And this aspect of death, this aspect of killing Israel, that goes back to my first point, right? God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to judge the people. And that was never supposed to be part of it. Who gave you the right to kill? Murder. Who gave you the right to murder babies? So now for you've taken the Nile and you've turned this into a place that you're killing. And then the Nile gets turned into blood, essentially is, again, I, I would call this, again, I'm ignoring now the the aspect of the Nile, which is considered to be a god, and I'm focusing on the aspect of the Nile, which represents the heinous crimes of the Egyptians, of Paro. So now the Nile turning to blood is God is essentially saying, so you want blood in the Nile? We can make as much blood in the Nile as you want. But that's a very different approach. So now I'm going to say, so which one's Pshat? Correct. And Moshe has this other interesting but but it's because of the problem that he's that he is saved by by the Nile and the fact that the daughter of Pyro saves she becomes a, a, she becomes a character who we're very sympathetic with because she ends up saving Moshe and if you don't remember in Divrei Hayamim she ends up marrying one of the Jews and leaves Egypt together and she joins the Jewish people she becomes a she becomes a convert she she but. My question is, so who was the woman who went down? And yes, I, you don't have to tell me. I know the Chazal that says that she went down because she wanted to immerse in the water in order to convert. That was, was going to be the mikvah. But, but, but that's really interesting. Is that really the right place? I just want to say it again. And, and, more, impor- and more importantly, 
is that really the pshat of what is going on in that uh, in in that particular in that particular verse? But but what I'm what I am now saying is that both of the suggestions that I suggested, I think that they're both pshat, but they're coming from two different vantage points about what's taking place. And I'm going to say it again. There are those who are going to try to read the theological all the way through, and I think you can, but I think you just may be missing something when you do that. Because the, the fact that the fact that God gets involved in history, the fact that we have at least this moment in history where the bad guys gets punished and the good guys are saved is absolutely theological. But it's also judgment. Meaning it's also judgment in the sense that God is showing judgment. Again, we believe that God is a fair judge, but God's fair judgment doesn't always place, take place on this world, which is exactly the issue. That, that God is going to show, well, no, sometimes the story is going to end the right way. Sometimes you're going to be able to see it. That, that, that itself... That, that itself is part of redemption. That itself is part of redemption. There, there, there's, um, the Vilna Gon makes a comment about this when he, uh, when he talks about drinking on Purim. I know you're thinking to yourselves, why am I thinking now about drinking on Purim? <laughs> but the Vilna Gon, when he talks about that you're supposed to drink what he comments is, is that you drink. He doesn't say you get drunk out of your mind. He's still a litvak. He's not a chassid. And he says that you drink and then you contemplate that philosophical question, what really is the important thing in life is to see, Adilo Yada, Ben Arahaman, is the important thing is that the wicked get punished? Or is it Baruch, or is it Baruch Mordechai that God will end up blessing the, the righteous? Which means to, to see God's judgment in history. To see that, that actually the bad guys suffer at some point and that the good guys get rewarded or the bad guys get punished at some point and the good guys get rewarded, that's something which is part of a, of a redemption and that's part of what takes place over here. And again, let's be honest, it does not always take place in history and we're not always able to uh, to see that or to witness it. So, so I, yes, I agree with you that the very fact that God is involved in judging, once you put God in a sentence, you can then say, oh, that must be theological. But, but my point, when I was trying to draw the distinction before, it's very different if the Nile is turning into blood because Paro imagines that he's the god of the Nile. That I'm calling completely theological. Or is it judicial because they tortured the Jews by throwing the babies into the Nile, and therefore the Nile is going to turn to blood? As and that I'm calling judicial. Either way, you can you can say, oh, it's theological. No, that that's why I'm going to. And essentially, what I what I was doing was going into the two different verses. Are we being motivated by the verse that I'm going to judge the gods of Egypt? Or is it a motivated verse that the nation that did this, I am going to judge them? So what do, are we dealing with punishment for them? Or are we dealing with their, their, their way of looking at the world and way of looking at, uh, at God? So, so I, I hope all of that worked a little bit as an introduction to what I wanted to... Because I didn't get up to the first source yet... <laughs> But, but no, but I was trying to help those who don't have the sources, so therefore that we can talk in a much more uh, general sense. When when we get to what I have as the first source, and, and it's we, we, we skipped a little bit, we were down the line, and, uh, but I'm going to come back to some. So we're getting to this thing called a rove. A rove we generally call wild animals. V'fleti b'yamuhu et eretz goshen, asher ami omed aleha, 
So this is Perikhet Pasuk Yudchet. Levulti Hayot Sham Arov. So something is introduced over here, which I also want to address, and that is that the land of Goshen is not going to be impacted by this. So now, if I were to ask you off the top of your heads, completely unfair, but it's fair, because we have a collective, I think, 700 star room that you've been to over the years, right? How many of the plagues does it state that distinction between the Jews does it state it between the Jews and between the Egyptians? And how many of them don't? Or maybe maybe I missed a question. Maybe I missed a step. Did all 10 plagues, did they only, were only the Egyptians punished by this? Or did the Israelites also suffer? So for example, when the Nile turns into, into water, did the Jews have... Did the Jews have water to drink, or no? The, the Jewish can I can I now rephrase can I rephrase my question now? Because that that was like the introduction to the question of the ten plagues. How many of them does the text clearly say that it was only the Egyptians who suffered and not the Jews, or is it really all ten? Okay, to say I don't know is a good answer. Good. Choshech, it says, but, but, but that's good because now we're like up to nine already. <laughs> so, so, so we have one or two before then. So, so, so again, my question is, did it, does it say it by all ten or does it not? So that, that's a yes or no. So the answer is it doesn't say it by all ten. So now, so which one does it say? So that now, now that's, another, that's a better question. Now, I could just leave it like this and say, so you do what I do. And go look it up and, and, and read it actually three times to make sure you didn't miss anything there along the way. And don't trust anybody, right? That's the first thing. Don't trust anybody because uh, because once you go to the Midrashim, for example, you'll get to some interesting things. Again, the, the, the best and, and maybe the most famous Midrash is, is, is the one that at least, again, I, I, don't, I, I don't want to make everybody feel bad, but it's the one that at least some of us learned as kids. And that is that when they were, that if a Jew or an Israelite and an Egyptian were drinking with two straws coming out of the same glass, and one was water, one was blood. And I think all of us saw visuals of this in, in some Haggadahs, right? I, I don't know which... I, I, I'm sorry, my, my, I focus on wickedness. And when I look at, do that in our Seder. You do that at the Seder. The red uh, uh, jello on the bottom, and then we pour red... Uh, some we pour, and some are clear. One year, my, one of my grandsons cried so hard, we had to stop doing it. He got the red... Where did this come, where did this come from? What's the matter with you? What's the, what's the matter with you people? I, I just have one question for you. Did this come from New Mexico? Or did this come from Vegas? This was Vegas. It's the show. It was the show. Was Dave Copperfield out this? Okay. Yeah. But how do you do? But how did? I hope that I have I hope that I have I hope that I have insurance, malpractice insurance by any shock that any poor child going to experience and the therapy that they're going to need afterwards because of the irresponsible people in this room um, it's in Shmot it's in Shmot Rabbah I'll, I'll, I'll read to you a second you don't have it in front of you so it says that if they would drink 
water from a Jew's water. But th- that itself is interesting because it never said that, that it was only by the Jews. But there's actually a problem that needs to be uh, addressed. So should we stay with the, we'll stay with the Dom? We'll stay with the Dom for a second. So let, let me actually read, read the verses, the Dom, if I can. In, in Perik Zion, Pasuk Yud Zion, Rashi comments with his Benefchul Adam, so essentially saying, if you hit the Nile, you then, by extension, have hit everything else, because the Nile does come up and causes all the water. Now, technically, I don't know. Again, I'm not questioning Rashi. I just don't know what really goes on in all water sources and so on. And in Egypt, they they worship the Nilus, the, the Nile. The Fichach. Halaka et yiratam. Therefore, God struck their God, what they believed in. Yiratam means what they believed in. They, they had yirah for what they uh, worshipped. The achukach hilkaotam. So, this Rashi is interesting for a, a whole bunch of reasons. One is that Rashi just provided us with a reason. And which direction did he go? The direction that he went was the, that was the more theological one. They worshipped the Nile. It means Rashi knows that. He, aware of that, he moves in that, he goes in that direction. I'm, I'm sorry for going back and forth, and I don't want to confuse more than necessary, but when we get to the Arov, which is where I started, and there it did say, okay, let's just, I, I want to read, Reflati biyamahu et Eretz Goshen, Asher, Ami omed aleh, levilti oyot sham Arov, leman tedaki in Hashem bekerav haaretz. So it says it's going to happen here, but it's not going to happen in Goshen. Vesamti pedut bein ami u bein amecha, and there will therefore be a distinction between the two peoples, Vayas Hashem Kain, Vayavo Arov Kaved Beta Paro Ubeta Vadav. Uvachol Eretz Mitzrayim Tishacheta Eretz Mne Arov. So Arov comes and attacks everything. So Rashi here writes Eta Arov Komine Chayot Raot. By the way, the Rashbam says it was mainly wolves, wild wolves, but Rashi says all kinds of animals. And Rashi says, and by the way, if you look at the Midrashim, now, this, I was very tempted to give you all these Midrashim, that they give reasons for each one. Why? Now, one of the reasons you can't trust what you read is there's a whole cottage industry of commentaries on Rashi. Rashi wrote a commentary, and then you have all kinds of people who wrote super commentaries, if you will, that who wrote commentaries on Rashi. One of the more famous ones is the Maharal in the Gur Aryeh. The Maharal here writes on that phrase, He didn't ask why they... He didn't ask. Well, it's true. He doesn't use that phrase. Why did... But he did ask. (laughs) Rashi just said why he came. So I, I don't know how the Maharal missed Rashi. I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a little mystified how he can possibly write this. And then he goes into a whole explanation between the difference between Dam and Sverdea versus, uh, versus Arov. The Arov, the animals are far away, and over here, these things are, are nearby. And, and, and I'll say it again, anybody who wants to tr- go, go look at this Maharal and try to defend what he's doing over here, I'd be very happy, but it's very strange because we just now saw Rashi does ask the question, why is the Nile being turned into blood? And he gives us an answer. He goes, this was a God for them. So therefore, that whole theological uh, approach 
is is introduced. Now, before I go back to the blood for a second, I, I did skip over over frogs, and and we should never skip over frogs. Was, you were green today, I say, in 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 honor of the frogs, and that's you know, a lot of soldiers are wearing green today in uh, in honor of the frogs, and uh, and we completely respect that. But but I, I I want to note something. In source number six, which is Perak Zayin, Pasukov Chet, when it describes the frogs coming out, it says, Visharatz hayaort svardaim. And how do you want to translate the word visharatz? You like, yeah, you like that? Swarm? I don't know. If I knew, I wouldn't have asked. I don't know. Visharatz. Exactly, exactly. So, so okay, so so hold on, hold on for a second. Um, what exactly are frogs? These are um, these are these are very these are these are reptiles. Now, by the way, there are some commentaries will go back to that theory that they weren't there; they, they they were spontaneous generated in the water. The sharats hayaort svardaim. The yaor gave birth to svardaim, and that's again that's the, this whole, much more theological approach. Look what God's power is. God can spontaneously create these things. Uh, on the other hand, I, I do want you to think about gobels for a second. And uh, I don't normally say that. And and, uh, and 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 think about propaganda against the Jews. They made movies and they tried to explain again. What did they do against the Jews? It wasn't murder and it wasn't killing. In their minds, what was it? No, no. Even before even, extermination, extermination. So what do you exterminate? You you exterminate bugs. So it's in, So the word visharats over here is one of of these things just coming all over the place, which is much more in the, the word sheretz, right? As well, is much more in uh, in yeah, infestation is much more in in that direction. And I would have been tempted to have compared that to source number seven, which is right in the beginning of Sefer Shemot. Uvnei Yisrael Peru v'yishritzu v'yirbu. The yishritzu is they became so multiple, so so numerous, and that's exactly where power is coming from. Oh, we got a Jewish problem. There are so many of them. There's a population, right? These people. And, and by the way, and then in the defense afterwards, you got to kill them. And, and what's the defense? The defense is, oh, the Jewish women are... What, what, do you remember the word, what word they use? Chayot. So I would be so tempted now to read the, these two plagues in terms of the frogs, we have Yishritsu, and then the wild animals that are coming in terms of a response to Paro's whole beginning of his attack against the Jews for being numerous. Now, look what I just now did. What, what I did is I much more tried to stay within the pshat, to read the words, to read the verses, and to say, okay, again, I'm deliberately moving away from, oh, well, look at God's power. Of course it's all about God's power. I mean, I'm saying, but, and I'm also willing to say that it's the two of them coming together. I'm, I, again, I don't have to make that choice, but what I am saying is don't miss the linguistic or the literary connections which are taking place, because I think that there is a lot to be gained by simply reading what the words say, as opposed to moving straight to a theological argument which kind of ignores what the Pshad actually says. I mean, that, that, that's really what I wanted to get to, but I, I want to do one more level of that, which goes back to our problem with the, the water, and, and ultimately, by extension, it goes back to this problem of uh, who is it, or who are the people who are suffering by this? Is it only the Egyptians or also the Jews? And now we know that there are some that say it and some don't say it, but we see, if you'll take that Midrash, 
And just to now extrapolate from that midrash, that means already it was important by the first one, by Dom, to already say, oh, look, the, Jew, the Jews had water. The Jews had water, and, and therefore I can then say by all of them, some it says it and some it doesn't say it, but it didn't have, I didn't need that. I didn't need that because now I realize that God is coming, again, to judge the Egyptians, so why should the Jews suffer? Meaning, this is not the kind of thing that there should be any kind of collateral damage, which means essentially that would be the approach. If all of this is God judging this nation that does something which is wrong, so there, it, it makes no sense at all that we should suffer. And I think that that is the Midrashic mindset. And, and by the way, I googled that last night to see uh, to see what people say about this. I was very intrigued what, what people say about this. And I found that in a lot of Christian sources as well, websites, they, they're going back and forth, arguing what the upshot in the, in the Pasuk is. Did, did they suffer? Did they not suffer? And, and so on. And here it says it, here it doesn't say it. So I, so I, I noted that this thing, that, that, that this thing absolutely has uh, captured the imagination of many people. We're, it does state it by three of them, right, clearly. Now the question is, how many more of them is this the case? But, but I want to go back, because there's another issue about the water. And after, and, and I always find this a little bit amusing, but I'm not sure exactly if that's the, the right word to use. When, when the Nile is turned into blood, then we once again have... Paro's henchmen who are around, who also do something. But what water do they have? Which means if all the water is already turned into blood, so what water do they have where they're now doing something which is similar? Now, I can say the whole thing is sleight of hand. I can say that the whole thing is, is um, it's, it's not real. It's that it looks like water. Again, if I'm dealing with magicians, so now I go back, to what I said before. Is it sleight of hand they don't really have water or it's not really blood and they, they found your powder or they found your jello or they found whatever, uh, whatever things you were doing but it's, not, but it's not real, it's not blood. It could scare some people but it's not, it's not blood or do they actually have water? But if they did have water, where do they have water from? So again, what always amused me is that if they did have some more water left and they turned that into blood as well, so now they have of course, obviously nothing to drink, but where did the water come from? So that's a question which actually bothers lots of, uh, lots of commentaries. Rashi avoided, I think, this for, for the most part. That midrash that I quoted to you could have been used to say, oh, look, the Jews had water and they don't. And, and that would have been the end of the of the discussion. The Midrash HaGadol, again, you don't have this in front of you. This was black magic. So we're saying, yeah. So again, God somehow allows them to do black magic. That's really interesting. Because now I have to go back to what I'd said from the you know, towards the beginning. I'm going back that now God is doing what? He's hardening their hearts. How's he hardening their hearts? By giving them the ability to ignore what they just now saw. Right? Meaning, I don't think any of you imagine that this, no, this is itself hardening the heart because when you see something miraculous, you should have lost your free will at that point. But when your henchmen can now use black magic and do the same thing, okay, so they're also doing black magic and that gives you more resolve. So, Right? Am I correct about this? That you never thought about that in, in within those particular terms? I'm going to say, okay, but that's I'm just extending what the Midrash Hagadol 
says, and once again, a little poetic justice here, Midrash Gadol is a Midrash that was found in the Geniza in Cairo, so therefore I find it appropriate to use an Egyptian, uh, an Egyptian Midrash in order to explain what took place in Egypt. I just, as I said, it's uh, poetic justice. Elu Masek Shafim, right? Masek Shedim, Masek Shafim. V'chenu Omer V'etolhadacharav Mitapechet. So it's saying that, that, that these things are all kinds of uh, magical things which are taking place. The Ibn Ezra asked the question, V'yesh l'shol, Imayana Aron, Evchu kol meimei Mitzrayim l'dam, Onu Matzuach atrimimayim, where do they find water from? And now, I hope you realize that's a really fair question, if I'm assuming that all the water became. Which means they left them the possibility to go and dig. Oh, you want some water? Good. Go and dig. You'll find some water. And they made it look like it turned to blood. So again, they had to work really hard. Again, the timeline of this is also interesting. Because he turns all the water, they have to go start digging for water. That that's, sometimes takes a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Is it easy to dig in uh, in Egypt? No. Why? It's water. It's so essentially they're saying again they went down to to the river and 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 Moshe Aaron turns this whole moving body of water into blood. So whatever keeps on coming is old blood. And they took a little cup and they did something in a little cup, which the Ibn Ezra is claiming is not as impressive. Now, there are a number of Baleatos vote. And if you don't know this, I'll say it again. We generally don't really learn Tosfot on Chumash as much as we should. There's a whole bunch of them, a whole bunch in manuscripts, a whole bunch have been published, and they just didn't make it to the Mikrot Gadolot for the most part. There is sometimes a Datsagin about Tosfot. The Rashbam is in some places, not in all places, but they very much, just like Tosfot on the Gemara, tend to all ask the same questions and then very often give the same approaches that they've, they're coming from one tradition. And I'll read to you two of them. One is Reb Chaim Paltiel. He writes, Same question the Ibn Ezra asks. And by the way, Ibn Ezra, when he travels to Spain, he ends up meeting the Baliotel's vote when he comes to France. And he is influenced to some extent. So therefore, I, I can't ask, did he have this question before? Did he hear about this question? But I'm leaving that for the moment. And how do they have blood? And that Goshen was never impacted by any of the plagues. So there you have that broad across the level. But now that's interesting because it's very interesting actually. Now the question is how much damage did they do in Goshen? I mean, I, I can read it from the Riva. Right, and he, and he quotes another one of the more famous Balitosa, 
and so on. He goes, I also found a little evidence of this in Tanchuma as well. Now, I don't know how far to push this, but I want to go a little bit further and at least raise a possibility that we're dealing with black magic. I, I, I don't know that much about black magic. And apparently, God allows such things to happen. What if Moshe and Aaron, and maybe more importantly, Aaron over here, turned the Nile into blood and now, and, and that's devastating for Egypt? And, that, and that's plague number one. And that's a punishment. Now, you can go either way. As I told you, there's two different ways of reading it. One, the punishment against the gods of Egypt, and the other punishment against you know, God's belief system and so on, and the other punishment for them for the actions of what they've done. And now, what if the Chatumim now, they turn water? And that's, that's what's troubling. Which water? So, now, so if it's the water in Goshen, how wide was this? How broad was this? How much water did they do? Did they just now turn all the water of Goshen into blood? And now I know you don't want to say this, but I want you to think about that for a second. If what's taking place over here is God is smacking, but then he's going to lift them up a little bit, give them ability, because they're going to return the free will. Let power move on. Let power have return his free will after seeing something which is devastating. And yes, we talked about power psychologists before, and we talked about his cardiologist and his psychologist, and maybe his psychiatrist. I mean, power is not having a good day. Power has to go see all kinds of specialists, and you know, sometimes take, I guess if you're power, you don't have to wait a line or anything. But power is not having a good day. So now, is God going to prop him up to get ready for the next plague, which is part of the judgment that's going to take place. In order to prop him up, and how wide does it have to be? So it always troubled me that Aaron could turn the whole Nile, which keeps him flowing into blood, and he could take a little cup and say, oh, look, you know, i got some jello on the bottom, and uh, okay, now we're even. Or did God allow through black magic for this to take place in a much broader sense? So that's why I find it interesting. I'm not saying that anybody went as far as I just now went, but that's what I find really interesting. That they're saying, oh, where was the water from? How did they turn water? Well, in Goshen, there's water. So now, and they turn, the, they turn the water of Goshen into blood. Okay, how much? Was it one cup, one house, the whole place? And now, if it's everything, now you understand how power has the resolve and the ability to go further because essentially God, God knocks him down, lifts him up. Why? Because he's got a couple more things coming to him. Why? Because he's done some really bad things. And as I said, this also is essentially a problem which emerges from pshat. What's the pshat? How do they turn water into blood? Two levels of the problem. What water do they have and how do they do it? So that God allowed them to do black magic, great. That God, what water? Well, maybe the word in Goshen. God allowed to do, now how, how widespread was this? How profound was this? How many? How much water was affected by it? So now we just look at the larger story, which is taking place over here, and that's what, and that's what I'm insisting is that giving them the ability of doing certain things is perhaps the same thing that we hear as we're moving forward. That God, God hardens His heart, gives Him resolve, gives Him the ability in order to go further. Why? Because a very long time ago, God said to Abraham, "And I'm going to judge this nation." And when I judge them, they're going to be deserving of, if they're deserving of punishment, they're going to be getting their punishment. And they've done certain things here along the way. And, and that's what really what I've tried to do today, not to talk about the way that some do, how each one of these plagues shows God's power over a different kind of realm. God's power, I think, is quite manifest and quite understanding to us. And we understand it, what God is doing over here. And that's why I prefer to look at the shot hints 
I don't even want to call it a remez or hint, that, that things that emerge from reading the descriptions back and earlier, what the Egyptians did. You know, and look, one of these is going to be so clear, and that's the that's going to be the final plague. When when God says to Moshe, go to Pyro and tell him that Israel's my firstborn. If you kill my firstborn, I'm going to kill your firstborn. Which means Yes, that's the way that we should be reading this. Look what they did. This is the Dan Anochi. I'm going to be judging you. And the things that you've done are going to come back to you. So that, therefore, it's interesting. Oh, you, you called the Jews insects, right? That, that, that they were like sherets. So now the frogs suddenly come all over Sherat. You called them animals. Suddenly the animals come. So, so again, what I'm pointing at over here is I prefer to read these as judgments and Again, I'm not getting through all of them. I'm giving direction. This is what I think that needs to be done. You can go back and your homework is to go and take a look which which one of the plagues actually says it, which one it doesn't say it. But uh, the, the problem of where the water comes from still, still remains. So I think that this was uh, at least one way of resolving it.